Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Prison Counts Podcast, where we take you inside the criminal justice system and what it's like to live life in prison. I'm your host, Ryan Ferguson, here, as always, with my good friend and co-host, Dave Dowling. Dave, how you doing? Real well, Ryan. Thanks for asking. Uh, Excited about today's show and uh, ready to have some talks with our guest. Yeah, good guest, good guest. My uh, my favorite all-time guest, I'm biased. Uh, who, who's our lucky guest today? That'd be Bill Ferguson. Bill Berg, yeah. yeah. Your father, world adventurer, and a justice seeker, for sure. Indeed, indeed, good man. Um, no introduction necessary. Let's go ahead and just bring him straight in. Dad, Mr. Bill Ferguson, how you doing, man? Well, I'm doing great. I love that introduction that Dave gave. That's, that's, that's fantastic. Awesome. Yeah, he knows what's up. He's uh, He's been introducing for at least, uh, what, like eight or nine episodes now. So. Right I've been on. listening to Dave, and he is really good. Oh, he thank you. Uh, well, I've been a big uh, a fan and admirer of yours since even before any TV shows or movies came out. Uh, I uh, I met you in the visiting room at JCCC and uh, was always just impressed, really, by your greatest attribute, which is just being a wonderful father, because that's the obvious thing. And I think that's your greatest accomplishment among many accomplishments. Thank you. Cool, man. So uh, let's just hop straight into it. Uh, Dad, we've gotten a lot of requests to hear from you, from our listeners and supporters, and uh, and rightly so, because people know how instrumental you were to fighting the wrongful conviction and helping prove my innocence, getting me out, getting my life back. But there's so much that you had to deal with and that mom had to deal with that nobody really gets to hear about. So we're just going to hop into that reality. I'm going to let Dave do a lot of the questions. Some of them are based on what he's curious about, but a lot of them are based on what other listeners uh, have been sending questions about. So Dave, go ahead and kick it off. Well, you know, I think one thing that I'm not, I don't know if it's that I'm curious about, but I'm sure people want to hear about. I mean, I am, I can imagine what it would feel like, but I don't think anyone can really imagine stuff like that you know when you found out your son who had never been in trouble before was actually being arrested for murder i mean where where were you when you got the news and what was your reaction well i was at my house and uh two reporters came to my front door and uh, asked uh if i knew that my son had been arrested for murder and I said, uh, well, you have the wrong house because my son was not arrested for murder. That, that wouldn't be possible. And they said, well, is his name uh, William Ryan Ferguson and born October the 19th? I go, well, that part's correct. And they go, well, he's been arrested. And I said, so are you reporters? And they said, yes. And I said, is that a tape recorder? And they said, it is. I said, good. Turn it off and do an about face and leave. <laughs> Wise move. <laughs> Yeah, I think that is a wise move right there. I, 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 it's just so surreal to me. Like when I first met Ryan, and we talked, and then um, my f- friend from the street told me more about the story. I knew immediately that it didn't make any sense because in, in the kind of the criminal life, a person generally doesn't start off with robbery, murder. Like there's generally a pattern of criminal behavior that led up to that. And it it, it didn't make any sense to me right off the bat right there. And like you said, my son can't be arrested for murder. I know that's not true. And, and, and that, that's really what got me believing Ryan right off the bat was it just, just didn't make sense to me. Right. Well, the big thing for us was, uh, you know, I know my father believed in me. I appreciate you, Dad. But um, we'll, we'll hop into what happened next and, and how you're able to confirm that that's actually what had happened to me. But, uh, Dave, remember this. We got to get into I didn't want my dad and my family or the world just to believe in my innocence because of the character of who I am. I wanted them to see it based on the documentation. And that's a really interesting part of the story that we'll we'll get into a little bit further on down the line, right? Well, I think we should definitely start talking about that because somebody just believing me because they love me is one thing, but when you're actually innocent, you want it to be known for sure. 
that they know that you had no part of this. So, Ryan, did you get extradited back from you were up in another state when you were arrested? I was in uh, no, I was in Kansas City, Missouri. So they just drove me up here. Oh, they just drove me from Kansas City. I see. And so when was the first time, Bill, that you actually saw Ryan? How long was it? It would be about three or four days later. I think it was on a Wednesday. We went into uh, the, the jail. And, uh, and and bear in mind, all county jails are horrible. And uh, the Boone County Jail is no exception. And uh, uh, you're like in a little booth area. You cannot you – have it's had this thick window between you uh, and your loved one, between us and Ryan. And, you, and uh, you're talking on a phone and with other people up and down the, the row, like, you know, five other families. And, uh, and that was the first time we saw him. Couldn't, couldn't have any physical contact, couldn't have a hug, couldn't have a handshake, uh, no physical contact. And I hated that. Yeah, it's traumatizing, really. I mean, the stark reality when you get yeah. to a county jail and see your loved one in that position, it, it evokes a lot of emotion. And that's a place where you're innocent until proven guilty. You've been proven guilty of nothing and they deprive you of food. They deprive you of sleep. They don't let you outside. You get no physical contact with your loved ones. Um, you might get to see them once a week. You're paying $3 for every 15 minute phone call. <laughs> it's just. Yeah, it, it, it's surreal. And to kind of put in context here in a, a jail in a bigger city, when I was in county in Nine months I was in the county jail in St. Louis, I got in 12 fights. In 15 years in prison, I got in one scuffle. That is wild. <laughs> and it was just really it almost, it seemed like an untenable situation. I mean, it, it, the management of these county jails is disturbing. To say the least. Yeah. <laughs> And I don't know if that's to be made. What do you think, Bill? I mean, I think it's to be made so that you'll take some kind of deal just to get out of there. Well, the thing that I discovered, I don't, I didn't want to be uh, reactionary. Uh, I want to be thoughtful about the whole process, even though I was pretty upset, to say the least. But uh, the reason that the county jails are so bad is because the county, in their budgeting process, they put very little money towards the jail. So if you got X number of dollars, they go, okay, so should we better educate the guards, get better food, have a better facility, a cleaner facility, or should we repair some potholes? They're going to repair potholes because people with potholes in their front, uh, in their drive, in their, uh, the road in front of their house are voters and the people in the jail are not voting. So that's, it's a question of priority. And that, well, that's very true. You know, the economics of the situation are a big deal and, and it, it extends all the way up into the prison system. You know, it's hard to main, it's hard to draw employees with professional educations and backgrounds into these because the pay is not competitive with, with other fields, you know, and the stress level that comes with it and the danger aspect of it. It's very difficult to. To find, you know, the kind of consistent people that really they need to be running these places. But we should move on to how it went during when you got a lawyer and the trial proceedings began. What was your feeling? Were you hopeful? I mean, obviously you were hopeful, but how did you feel about Ryan's chances in court? Well, initially I, I knew nothing about the case, so I started looking into it. And uh, I thought we, we had a very good chance because the, the the scenario that they presented didn't make any sense at all. And as I discovered more and more, uh, the more I realized, well, this doesn't even seem logical. It doesn't even seem rational that this could have happened. So, and, uh, and Ryan, of course, he knows he's innocent. So he's thinking, all we have to do is get somebody with a law degree and, uh, and, and present our case to the court and we'll be released. And, uh, but much to our chagrin, that was not the case. Do you feel you would have had a better chance if you would have went with a bench trial where the judge just decides or with the jury? Uh, well, I have no faith in the jury process because uh, when you look at the jury that we had, uh, right off the bat, they said uh, 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 a jury of your peers. Well, there's one guy there that was older than me, and he couldn't even hear. So he, he couldn't even hear the case. And then there were some people who had very poor eyesight. They couldn't see the graphics or the 
the videos upon the screen. So already you're thinking, oh, good grief, we're in a bad situation immediately. But but here's the thing. Whenever you're arrested, you're in a prejudiced, symbiotic environment that's prejudiced against you right off the bat. And who is that? That's the police and the media. Because you, as the uh, uh, person being arrested, you don't get to sell your story. You don't get to say anything. But the police are telling everybody how bad you are, and the media is supporting them. Well, yeah, and they almost use the fact that Ryan comes from a decent middle-class background against him. Right. Like, and some people, uh, the misinformation that goes out is amazing. Like, I've had people tell me that, you know, and I'm not going to delve into your financial status bill, but I don't think you're a billionaire. Well, if you are, you got to quit hiding that from me, man. <laughs> right. <laughs> because people really thought all this stuff that, oh, he, oh, his family's so rich. I'm like, he lives over here in Columbia. I mean, what? Upper middle class. I mean, I guess to somebody who comes from nothing, that seems rich. But in reality, I mean, you know, it, it, it's just really, and a lot of that is pumped up by the media. Well, they want they want to write a story. There's a lot of competition. Uh, they don't look that closely at the story because they have a deadline, and uh, uh, they have to get the story out and, and go on to the next story. So they're not going to put much attention into it. And they're thinking, well, what can I do to get people's attention? Oh, yeah, they had a lot of money. Uh, they were young teenagers, and uh, they're wild guys. Okay, well, that, that ought to get a headline. All right, got that done. Now I'm going to the next one. So not a lot of thought goes into it. Let, let me ask you this on a, kind of a more personal level. So Ryan's in jail and then in prison, and you have a daughter also. In yes. Family. And so – what became of the holidays or special moments or, you know, how were you guys able to have any of your own normalcy at all? Or were you? No, it, you know, we, we, it didn't change our lives that much. Uh, I mean, we all had a heavy heart. Uh, it was very sad. Uh, but Ryan insisted that uh, we can, you know, we could continue with our life. And then the way he looked at it and the way I looked at it, the way we looked at it is if we kept upbeat, then that would help help all of us out. And if we started getting down and feeling bad and so on and so forth, then this would be a negative uh, uh, environment that we would create ourselves. So, no, we refused to do that. We refused to get drugged down by the system. That's great. I think we have that in common. You know, when I got to prison, the first thing really in my mind was I don't want to become prison. I don't want to become prison. I don't want to be that guy. And I don't want to bring any of it home with me. And I don't want that to be some kind of badge of dishonor that I wear to be something else. I don't know. But it's, it is about keeping upbeat. And Ryan and I both, when we were in there, I'm sure I can speak for him on this, is when you're there and you know you're going to be there, you have to live your life there and find your joy in the where what you have and i think that's for all of life you know that where you have to find a way to you know have peace and harmony no matter what the circumstances did you kind of feel like that absolutely yeah i agree and and ryan was very very supportive of that and and we all were and and that's what kept us going well on that note dad i i do i do wonder and this is a good point dave is we both live that way. You can certainly speak for me. I think you do so very eloquently. But that, do you remember how many, I mean, we talked pretty much every day, how many conversations we had where I was struggling with the reality that I was facing. These people, we knew, they knew I was innocent. They did not care. They were trying to take my life. And do you remember how many conversations you had guiding me through that process and keeping my mind on the right track and putting me in a right, in a good direction to keep growing and staying positive because I'll definitely, and I've told you this a million times, I've said in interviews, the only reason I survived is because of you and mom and all the amazing supporters out there. But do you remember all those conversations and how much you helped me get through that on a daily basis? Well, I, I remember having a, a lot of conversations and uh, I, I'm a lucky father and that uh, the thing that that is really important to me. And I think uh, really made our relationship unique 
is that uh, uh, you started playing basketball at the uh, university uh, when you're about nine years old. We're playing with these uh, college people, and you would get run over, beat up, uh, just mangled. You would never call a foul, you never cry, and you'd never want to quit. And we played like that. And then you got to be about 12 years old. I had to carry you because you were, you know, a lot smaller than everybody else. And oh, yeah. So when you got about 12, you started, like, you know, take care of yourself pretty good. And we played from about 12 to about 14, we played as equals. And then from about 14 on, you started carrying me. And uh, when we played basketball, it was man-on-man. It was tough basketball. And we had to depend on each other. And that's where we really learned to uh, – to respect each other and support each other and, and grow together. And I think that's what that experience, I think helped us a lot. Definitely. I was lucky to have that man. Uh, I've told you a million times, the father is the person who creates the relationship. And you always say like, I'm lucky to have you as a son and you hung out with me and everything. And I think what's really important to a lot of people is just the fact that like the father chooses that like a kid's always going to want to hang out. If a father creates that environment, and uh and you did and you took me with you and you let me hoop and and that was the coolest thing in my entire life up to this day still that's awesome you know i can remember a point ryan when we were together at jeff city and 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 like your dad said i mean you're a pretty stoic individual i mean you're you're not a person who shows a lot of emotion now you show a lot of support i mean you should i mean i'm not saying that you know you're aloof because you're not some people take it as that that don't really know you but I complained almost every day and I was guilty as hell. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I never really saw you complain much about what was going on with you. But the one day that stood out for me that you and I, at least in my mind, had a moment was when they, when they exhausted your appeals that day. And it felt like they slammed that door on you for good. Yeah. And it was hard to even to really even sit there and feel that with you. And Bill, how, how did that feel? Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. And I was prepared for it. Uh, we have very little faith in the, uh, in the court system. So I had already organized a billboard to go up uh, for a witness that I was looking for. And whenever the judge ruled against us, I, I didn't think he would, but I thought there was a good possibility he would. He did. And within uh, five days, we had a billboard up on I-70 saying that we're offering $10,000 reward for anybody that can recognize uh, uh, a picture of this person on the billboard as an eyewitness to this crime to show them that we were not giving up. You know, the thing in the process of the appeals, the lengthiness in the kangaroo court of it all the way. I mean, you know, as you go through all these steps that you're going to get nothing. I mean, there's zero chance that they're going to side with you for the most part. So you have to wait to get to this certain point, and then they'll tell you, this is it. When we rule against you here, you're dead. You know, but you have to, uh, 10 years. I mean, that's that's an outrageous amount of time with that much evidence supporting them. To me, in my mind, 10 years is real. That's 3,650 days. I mean, that's not they 10 years. I think sometimes in the way sentencing goes out, they don't, it, it seems it's, surreal you know like the, like they're not aware of <laughs> what that really means no i really know? do i agree it's like oh it's just a number whatever like well well, <laughs> well if certain appeals courts aren't real then skip them yeah you no know? well i think the appeals are really interesting dad do you remember i mean there were you appeal it back to the judge who gives you a bogus 20 million dollar bond the judge who doesn't care about right and wrong, the judge who retires and the prosecutor takes their position. And we know that it's going to take a year to appeal and they're not even going to take a look at it. They're never going to give it any real chance. They're never going to look at the facts. They were always biased. And it's just like, okay, the next year of my life is gone. And then the next appeal, you know, they're not going to listen to that because it goes to another court that's too close to the court that you're already in. And it's so dad, remember we had all those conversations and it was like, yeah, the next year means nothing. Yeah. How did that make you feel, man? Well, it just made me feel like I need to get out there and find more evidence. And, uh, you know, I was really irritated, uh, over judge Roper whenever I'll never forget that, uh, you know, sitting in the 
the high chair of the court, and they we asked for bail. And she says, oh, yes, bail. Hmm, let me think about that. Uh, yeah, I think uh, $20 million. Hmm. And uh, in that courtroom, it, uh, it was law day, and mainly you have attorneys. Two-thirds of the people in the court were attorneys. They collectively gasped. They couldn't believe it. Uh, that turned out to be the highest bail anybody in the United States has ever received for one count of murder. Judge Roper, congratulations. You set a record. Uh, what? Uh, that's so arbitrary. I mean, what is what is that number based on? I mean, I wonder what <laughs> math what math went on in her head, and you know, what did she you know base that on that that number just on a whim? You can put that kind of bond on a human being on a whim. Uh, that's how much power you have. That's outrageous. That's about as much effort she put into it. She yawned a couple of times and thought about it for about a split second, and that's the number she came up with. And then later on. Uh, sort of explained vicariously that, uh, well, you know, Ryan was born in Australia, so uh, he could probably escape and go back to Australia. Let me see. If you are in prison and you don't get bail, uh, that would be pretty hard to, to go to Australia. So they could offer no bail. So by, by giving a $20 million bail, the highest ever in this situation, then you're creating a prejudice situation with the public and and uh, with the court system, with everybody. And people are thinking, well, gosh, if she gave him a $20 million bail, he really must be bad. He really must be guilty because no one else has ever experienced that. Right. <laughs> it's just it's, it's a, another case of the discrepancies. You know, we talked about in another podcast the discrepancies and sentencings from one district to another, one judge to another, the discrepancy in the bond system. I mean, there should be set numbers for set things. It shouldn't be at the whim of someone else. I mean, I think we're that the system's been around long enough now that those are easy fixes. There should be a criteria. It should be. Pretty straightforward. It's like, you know, you're going in for brain surgery. You go, well, let me see. I don't know how we should do it this time. No, they know how to do it. It's a set procedure. Uh, it's like sitting there in the court going, well, I don't know, you know, maybe maybe 500,000, maybe, oh, hell, let's just make it 20 million. This is right. They're like, <laughs> Ryan and I both go to the same dentist to get a tooth pulled. And they came into me and they say, well, we'll do yours for Seventy-five dollars, and then they go and Ryan. Mm, we'll do yours for seventy-five thousand. <laughs> pretty much, you know, <laughs> that's the price, and it's based on your face. I guess. Yeah. You know, why is that? I don't know. It's just how I felt when I woke up. <laughs> right. It just seems I need that right now, so I'll charge that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I don't know, but uh, w- one question that I never really uh, was sure of is your lawyer from Chicago, uh, Kathleen. Kathleen yeah, Zellner. Kathleen Zellner. Yeah. yeah. How did she get involved and when did she get involved? <laughs> well, this one girl in particular uh, saw a uh, television show in which Kathleen Zellner was featured. And she called me and she says, this Kathleen Zellner is somebody you need to talk to. She is fantastic. So I looked at the case. Well, she was fantastic. So uh, I left her a message and uh the next uh, at night, I left her uh, 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 an email, and the next day at noon, I remember I was selling a house. I was standing in the driveway. I get this phone call from Chicago. I'm thinking, who do I know from Chicago? And uh, it's Kathleen Zillner. She says, "Hey, Bill, this is Kathleen Zillner." And I almost had a cardiac arrest on the spot. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh my gosh. She goes, uh, "You know, I watched Ryan on the 48 Hours, and I said to my husband, if I ever get the opportunity." I would like to be his attorney. So, Bill Ferguson, I want to know, what do I have to do to be the attorney? I said, well, come down and do a walk with me of the crime scene and stop by the prison and see Ryan. She goes, okay, how about weekend after next? This is one of the top lawyers in the United States. Weekend after next, she came down with her law partner. We did a tour of the crime scene, and she went down and saw Ryan. That's Kathleen Zoner. And when, I tell you what, when you're represented by Kathleen Zillner, you're represented. Yeah, that was a really interesting time. I, you know, people never really hear these stories, but when uh, when I met Kathleen, it was 
such a hopeful moment in my life because you just, it's hard to get any representation, let alone good representation. And generally it costs so much money and you have an opportunity for literally one of the best attorneys in the nation to do your case pro bono, but you got to go through this kind of uh, interview process first. (laughs) And I remember Kathleen and Doug came to the prison. We met in the visit room and it was empty and, uh, and I talked to them both and I could tell, I mean, I was definitely being interviewed and, you know, they're obviously incredible attorneys. They know how to interrogate people. So they were interrogating me. They know all the facts. And then, uh, and then Doug steps out and I talked to Kathleen alone for probably 10 or 15 minutes. And like, that was the moment. It was like, she's really digging in, getting to know you, determining whether or not you're a person she wants to represent. Are you going to represent yourself well? Are you going to fight for yourself? Is she not only going to believe in the facts, but believe in you? And uh, man, it was just such a uh, such an incredible and terrifying experience all at once. And uh, when she was like, we're going to re- represent you and left there, man, it was, even though it took another four years to get me out, it was the best feeling that I had had in six years. It's like at that moment, I knew that I would be proving my innocence in the quickest amount of time humanly possible. And I am 100% certain that no one could have done it better or faster than Kathleen. So that was incredible. Absolutely. Absolutely. So are you home right now without her? I think there's a really good, great question. A really good probability I'm not because what I've seen is attorneys don't push you know, they don't push like they should. They don't push the courts as I believe they should. So Kathleen, she gets the facts and she starts filing and she's like, you know what? I'm going to get this in front of a judge. I'm going to start pushing this forward and they're going to hear this evidence and we're going to do something. Whereas I've seen so many other attorneys get evidence to prove a person's innocence, but they're like, well, we need, well, we need this over here or we need that over there. And it literally six months goes by. We're going to file next month. Another six months goes by. Well, we're going to file one and we just need one more thing. And literally years of a person's life pass by before the attorneys even file anything. And we know when you file, then it takes another year to get into court and another year to appeal. Like Kathleen is incredible because she understands how the system works and how you have to force these people's hands to do work because the criminal justice system and courts in general uh, they will delay everything as much and as long as they can. And they take advantage of people. And Kath- and a lot of attorneys, for whatever reason, allow that to happen. Kathleen does not. She takes control. She says, this is how we're doing it. And, uh, and it's incredible to see because she is a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, and a good example of that is uh, in the beginning of Ryan's experience in prison before the trial, uh, I understand that uh, you want discovery. You have to have discovery before you can know what, what's going on with your, your case. So uh, uh, we had an attorney. He, uh, I was thinking of a couple of derogatory words I could use to describe him. So oh, I guess I'll yeah. skip over that. Oh, Scott. Anyway. Well, I'm, sure, I'm sure he gave you a full refund after everything went wrong. <laughs> yeah. Right. He, he sure did. Uh, anyway, uh, I, uh, he says, you need, and so here's the thing. I, I didn't hire an attorney until about 10 days later. And people go, oh my God, you got to have an attorney. No, you don't have to have an attorney because guess what? They're not going to let you plead guilty. There, there's no way you could plead guilty in a murder case. They will not let you do that. I know that. And so, uh, so that gives you 10, 15, 20 days to go out and find an attorney because nothing's going to happen. I mean, a lot of people go, oh, my God, you can't do that. No, yeah, you can. You can't because nothing's going to happen. There's nothing for an attorney to do. So uh, uh, but so he was saying this. We finally decided on this particular individual. And he's saying, you know, you, you've got to you need to give me my retainer so I can get discovery. Discovery is important. you got to have that. we got to have that. So we start filing motions. I go, yeah, OK, I understand that. I said, OK. So we after about 15 days or so, we signed the paperwork. And then he drug his feet getting the discovery. The prosecutor wouldn't give him the discovery. And uh, I called him up on the phone. And I'm not going to share the (laughs) 
But I will say that I was a drill sergeant in the Army, so I do knew know a few adjectives that I could use to uh, describe the situation. At the end of that, he said, you know, I've never had anybody ever speak to me like that. And I said, you know, I've never heard had anybody that be do such a horrible job as you're doing, and I expect you to do something pronto. And that afternoon, he filed for a motion to compel, and that's when we finally got discovery. And I shouldn't have to chew a guy out that I'm paying to defend my son to get discovery, which we should have gotten automatically. And that's the crazy stuff you get into. Absolutely. I mean, that's really outrageous because I didn't have a really, I mean, I had an attorney when I was arrested, but I just wrote him and they gave me my discovery, you know? Yeah, that's, I mean, like, that's what should happen. Later, I don't even know how to file a motion. I just wrote him and said, can I have my discovery? And they're like, yeah, here. That's, you know? But see, that's the way, that's my experience with the, the court system. I mean, you have people like Kevin Crane, who's now a judge, and he's a despicable human being, as everybody knows. They've all seen him on uh, Dream Killer and all, all that he's done to basically obstruct justice. But he chose to not give the discovery up and our attorney should have known that he was going to get away with that in this court system in Columbia, Missouri, where it's very incestuous. And so nobody was going to force him to give that up until he filed the motion to compel. And our attorney was too weak to do that until my father basically was like, you have to do it. Like, Force your hand. He's not going to give it to you. He's going to keep lying to you. Kevin Crane is. He's not going to give this information. You have to force a motion to compel. And then that that point we got it. But that's what I'm saying with attorneys not understanding. You have to push the case forward. It's it's not just going to happen on its own, especially when you have corrupt prosecutors. Like it's just it's just not going to happen. Yeah, and, and while we're on the subject, there's another little factor. You know, he's he's a, what I'd call a pretty boy. You know, he's a pretty good looking guy, good personality, not much of an attorney, uh, but uh, he was. And I wrote him a little letter explaining my thoughts on this, that uh, he was very apprehensive of crossing swords with the prosecutor, because guess what? He's going to have other trials with the same prosecutor. So he doesn't really want to upset him. He's just going to go along and hope it all works out and hope that the parents don't say much. And, you know, the prosecutor will eventually give you the discovery. So they're playing the game. They're playing the long game. They're not playing the game of, of representing the client. They're playing the game of, I want to get along for the next 10 years in this court system, so I don't want to upset anybody. That's the game they're playing. Absolutely. I was going to comment on that a little earlier, that that aspect of it. You know, people that, and like myself, unfortunately, but other people that have been through the criminal justice system for a long time know, be careful what a, any lawyer you pick, because you they might make a deal with another guy to help you, or they might make a deal with another guy and use you. Yep, right. Like we'll give we'll give you Dave if you give me the break on this. Yep. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that might come down to Dave gave me ten thousand dollars, but Billy over here gave me twenty five. And uh next time I'll give you one. And that's how the system know? works. Yeah. And that's the barter system. One thing they tell you in court is Right before you plead guilty, is you didn't make any deals, did you? Yeah. Nobody offered you anything, and you have to sit there and pretend no, but you know you just made a deal because the court system can't work without the deal. It, it would be clogged; it would stop. No one, if everyone went to jury trial, you wouldn't get a trial for sixty-two years. <laughs> yeah, you would not. <laughs> so, so it works off the deal. I don't really know what the answer is to that because I'm really not that intelligent, but it, it, it's it's an interesting thing, and it and it. It harbors a lot of, and it's ripe for abuse. Well, one of the things that really bothered me with the criminal justice system, I guess we're just, uh, these conversations can go on and on about how systems really work, especially in a smaller environment like a Columbia, Missouri, but even in a St. Louis, I mean, really anywhere because the court system is small, especially when you get into specific areas of law, but these people all know each other. I mean, the judges know the prosecutors, the prosecutors know the, the defense attorneys, the defense attorneys are friends with the media, you know, and it's just everybody knows everybody and nobody wants to hurt anybody's feelings in that arena. So even if you can show that 
you know, this prosecutor is doing something wrong or that police officer is doing something wrong. They don't out each other because it doesn't benefit that whole, the group. And so it is a very incestuous system on almost every level. And as a person who's being thrown into it, relying upon the, the, the pieces in that system to do work for them, it's, uh, it's pretty troubling because oftentimes you're not going to get any good resolution. And then if you bring somebody in from the outside, everybody from the Ooh. inside shuns them yes. because they're not part Nothing of that Nothing will get them scrambling out of the light faster than an an outsider coming in to help who has notoriety. Yeah, yeah they they freaked out over seeing Kathleen Zilner, Zilner come in. Well, it's like a spotlight in a dark room. Oh, the rats, the rats are running for that for the exits. <laughs> but it. it's a symbiotic relationship. They go to eat their kids' weddings together. They go to Christmas parties together. They do everything together, and then they go to court as if you know they don't even know each other. Are you kidding me? You go to any one of these. Uh, uh, parties where you see a two or three lawyers and a judge, you got the whole pack of them in there. But at the same time, I'm not going to paint all of them with the big brush that we're painting. Yeah. I would like to say, take this moment to say judge Oxenhandler. He was a judge here is an excellent judge. I've gone to a couple of his court cases, listened in. One of them was a habeas case. He, he is absolutely excellent. I wish I could say that about more judges and, and, and I don't, I don't know most of them, but the ones I did know were horrible. But Judge Oxenhandler, I'd like to be able to say that I can say good things about people. I even know some police that are good. But uh, but you cannot say everybody's bad. And the other thing, all prosecutors are not bad all the time. But they're bad. They can be bad sometimes, and that's enough. They should be good all the time. It shouldn't be just sometimes. No, that's exactly the truth. And, and and I like to make that point clear every time we do a podcast is we're not anti-establishment. We're not anti-law and order. We're not here to say everything needs to be bashed and there's no good in it because, you know, there is good in it. And, and the system is our system. You know, it's the people's system, you know, and it's up to the people to become aware and become involved, right. you know, to know what's happening, Yeah, you know, to quit letting things happen behind closed doors, you yeah. know, and it's a shame, but we don't really care until one of our own family or ourselves. Yeah. Are in it. And then, right. and then we do. Well, and you there's know? just no way to know unless if it happens to you or someone else, we certainly didn't. And I agree with your guys' sentiment as well. Um, there's obviously great people in the system all, on all sides, whether they're prosecutors, judges, defense attorneys, obviously the media, like there's a lot of good people. I would say the balance are good you know, people who want to do the right thing. But the way that the system is set up is part of the problem. The incestuous nature of it, the fact that there's no accountability for prosecutors, it basically allows for corruption to creep in. And that's the problem. When you when you give absolute immunity to people who have absolute power, it's going to corrupt. And it will corrupt even good people. And that's that's what we're talking about and what we're seeing. And that's why I think there are so many wrongful convictions and so many disproportionate sentences and so much delay in the criminal justice system. So while it is a system I believe in and that ultimately works relatively well, uh, it's one that needs a lot of help, a lot of light shown on it. And, uh, and as Dave was saying, it is our criminal justice system and we need to make it better to protect all of us. Very well stated. Hey, Bill, uh, let me ask this because we're going into a long time here. Look, since Ryan's come home, he's been exonerated, he's been cleared. Are you still involved in any other kind of cases? Has this sparked you to, you know, look at other people's stuff and try to help or did this end hit there? You know, it's odd how that evolved. I, uh, <clears throat> after Ryan started getting out, 48 hours covered us and Dateline and numerous other organizations. People started thinking I, I had a good idea how things worked. So I started getting all kinds of phone calls. People asked me to help them with their cases. And I'm thinking, well, I'm not really qualified. I'm, I'm not an attorney. I'm not an investigator. Uh, but people said, no, we, we want you to do it. So right now I'm working on three cases and uh, they're pretty high profile. Uh, well, I'm still working on Ryan's case. And then there's the one where the person was shot, uh, I think, illegally by the highway patrolman. And then there's another case where a Chicago 
uh, ex-Chicago football player, we believe, murdered his girlfriend. We're working on that case. And uh, it's amazing what we've discovered. So, you know, it's something that uh, I never thought I'd be interested in, but I, I like doing this work and uh, I feel like I've got an aptitude for it. And I, uh, people need help and, and I'm happy to do it. But one thing that Ron and I always said right from the very beginning is we're not going to say anything unless we can document it. And that's the way I like to work on these cases. If I cannot document it, we're not going to say it. And I think that I goes think along because a lot of people are screaming, yelling, cussing, whatever. That doesn't do yeah. any good. You got to have documentation. That's excellent advice. And, uh, you know, I've, since we've started this podcast and I got an Instagram account now and stuff that I really didn't know about before, <laughs> now I'm getting inundated with people asking me to look into this and they're sending me clips right. and wanting actual court documents. And I, and I want to help them all, honestly. Yeah. But, at the same time, I'm humbled with like, you you know, I'm just a tow truck driver. <laughs> you know, I work like 12 hours a day. You know, I don't have, you know, and, and that's, a, I mean, that's the truth of my life. But, you know, I, I don't, you know, I'm not just a tow truck driver. I do care about, you know, justice reforms. Whatever you do for a living doesn't have to, you know, that doesn't become you. You know, the same as prison didn't become me. My job isn't me, you know. But it is kind of humbling and you do feel a wave of, like you want to help and almost helplessness, you know? <laughs> well, that's the sad reality of it, Dave. I think you, you bring up a good point is just that there are so many people that are in need of help in our criminal justice system that don't have access to it. And, you know, I mean, we, we all work full time and we do the podcast and we try to read other people's stories and documentation and try to see if there's any way that we can be of assistance, but there's just only so many hours in the day. And it's sad that, they have to reach out to people like us to get help when, you know, there should be a system set up to one, not have put a lot of people in the, the position that they're in. And number two, to help them once they're in that position, because as we know, the public defender system is completely over flooded. They don't have enough resources. They're not able to get to everyone. And in a lot of cases, the public defender system isn't even set up to help people after they've been convicted. So. Well, that's true. And one thing, and I'll tell all my, all the listeners who listen every week, if you do send me a message and I do tell you that I'll look at it, I will look at it. You know, I, you know, I always tell people, please be patient. Yep. There are only so many hours in a day, but if I do say I will, I will. And if I don't, you know, my yes means yes. Now my no means no. <laughs> but you know, not everybody that calls you is going to be innocent. I had one lady 100%. Co contact me and she uh, said, my husband is innocent and uh, you've got to help him. I said, okay. I said, well, send me the newspaper story of 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 the uh, of the incident. So she does. I read the newspaper, and uh, and about the, the second column, it says, oh, and by the way, we found the DNA uh, under the fingernails of the husband. I go, okay. So I call her up and I said, uh, you know, when you explained to me how your husband's DNA got under, how the how the lady's DNA got under your husband's fingernails, I'd be glad to take that next step. I never heard any more from her. <laughs> because, you know, you want to believe so much that your loved ones are innocent that uh, that you'll do anything, whether they're guilty or not. And you usually don't know. So I need and fact. let me tell you, I'm pretty jaded. I don't believe too many people. Like, I don't know. I might have became that way just from being in prison and everybody saying they're not guilty. And the first time I had a conversation with Ryan walking on, I mean, a real conversation with Ryan walking on the five house yard, I, I said, hey, just so you know, I really believe you're innocent, you know, and so does my family. Like, we really believe you, you know. Like, I'm not just saying that because we say that to each other every day. I mean, I actually and honestly, don't think you should be here. And I appreciate and that's that. That's kind of weird. Yeah. Yep. And that's right. what we like, you know, we knew we were getting the facts out there that kind of helped show like, cause we never talked about the case or anything, but it's like, you could see the facts and the facts were coming out 48 hours and things of that nature. Thanks Aaron Moriarty, by the way. And, but that, that was, it was so cool to see that people were, were witnessing that. Well, what was real cool inside was seeing, and this is the truth. Your dad just determination and being there oh, yeah. every week in that visiting room. I mean, everyone felt it. And whether they liked you or not, people were really 
inspired I was and still am by your dad, you know, and the way he, you know, just stuck to it and learned as he went and used the media against him. And, and just really, it was all inspiring. And anybody who hasn't seen Dream Killer, it'll, it'll, it'll get you choked up. You know, it, to me, it's, uh, I don't know, you have a lot of accomplishments in your life, Mr. Ferguson, but I think uh, your your fatherhood is probably your greatest, you know, and I think that's awesome. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. But, you know, I'll make one comment. Uh, 40 Hours is the first television show that really got into our case. And uh, they called us up, called me up, and they said, uh, we, we'd like to come. And they're in New York. And they said, we'd like to come. I, I'm not even sure if they knew where Missouri was. But we'd like to come <laughs> and, uh, and visit you. I said, great. So they came. We had a nice dinner. And they said, what do you think we need to do to understand this case? I said, walk the crime scene with me. And they go, all right. They get the cameras. We walk the crime scene. We walk along. I go, now right over here, X, Y, and Z happened. Well, now, Mr. Ferguson, how do you know that? I go, well, police report 32. <laughs> do you have police report 32? I said, yeah, it's right here. They go, oh, okay. So we went the whole tour like that. We got back and they go, uh, any chance we could have uh, those police reports? I said, this is yours. I gave them the whole notebook with everything. And now they felt confident in going forward and and talking about our case because I wasn't doing emotional things. I was giving them documented proof, documented police reports. Nothing that none of my opinions. This is what actually happened. This is what the police wrote. And so they had total confidence to go forward with that. And that's that's when Erin Moriarty jumped on that. And she did it three times. I think Ryan's case is the only time they've ever done three times. Yeah, that's cool. We almost got sick of seeing him on TV. <laughs> <laughs> and then to have to walk out in the wing and see him again. I'm like, hey, bro. All right. I can't escape from you anywhere. No. Okay. And now you're stuck here on this podcast with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, oh my gosh. Well, look, we are out of time. Dad, thank you so much for joining us, man. And you know, I love you so much, man. I appreciate everything. I wouldn't be here without you in, in so many respects. So uh yeah, man. Appreciate you. I love you too. And I'll tell you what, you guys are doing a great, great job on the program. I'm looking forward to meeting Dave in person sometime. I, I'm very impressed with his radio expertise and uh the thing <laughs> in his comments. Very, very thoughtful, very insightful. Very well done. So you guys are doing a great job. Thank you very much, Bill. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your taking your time to talk. And I, too, can't wait to see you in person. I was hoping we would during the amazing race premiere, but COVID shut us down. Ah, yeah. But we'll, we'll get it together. Sure. Real soon. All right. Take care, man. Later. Uh, thank you. Cool, man. Always good to have the pops on. It was. Uh, it's been a while since you guys saw each other. A long time. I haven't seen him since the visiting room. <laughs> yeah. Jeff City. Yeah. No, the crazy thing about the visit room, and we got to do a, a podcast on this, but it, it was very unfortunate because we couldn't even talk to each other really. And uh, you had to stay in your your group. And if you tried to talk to somebody from a different group, even though we'd all say hi to one another and we got to know one another, it was like, I could never get to know your visitors very well because they'd be like, oh, you guys can't talk. Right. They'd come by and say something. And, you know, when we first got there, remember, we used to get up and get our own snacks. Like we just yeah. had a little bag of change with us and we'd go up and get snacks. <laughs> yeah. Then we couldn't do that. Then the <sighs> the visitor had to go do all that yeah. stuff, which was, you know, bad if you had a visitor that was elderly. And there were a lot of those, man. A lot of right. people with elderly parents or grandparents that were coming in, they'd have to like, you know, stumble over, try to grab you a soda and a bag of chips. And it's just like, it's so wrong. You know, they had yeah. to work to get into this. Like, it's hard to get into a visit. And it, and it didn't help or slow anything down that was coming yeah. into the prison anyway. And that, that was another thing. I remember my aunt Carol came and visited me one time and, uh, well, it, it was so frustrating because it was one of those Saturdays where the visiting room was packed and she couldn't hear a word I was saying. I mean, yeah. Oh, I believe it. It gets loud in there, especially if you got the dominoes on the table next to you. Just whack. whack. Oh, man. I can't oh. tell you how many times I almost lost my oh, stuff or oh, somebody yeah. being yeah. rude in the visiting room next to me. Yeah, but hey, have some respect, man. You don't got to slam those things down. You don't got to yell they even to put those in to? there. You know, why even offer that option in there? You know, I know. 
know, it's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, I had to get moved a lot because I'm like, look, if you don't move me, right. something's going to be said that is isn't going to work out well for a lot of people, and I'm going to regret it. <laughs> we could <laughs> do a whole thing. show on visiting rooms, but well, anyway, yeah, that's coming. Um, you know, your dad is. I love how your dad talked. You know, your dad's very precise about stuff. You know, I think one of the big things I got out of what your dad was talking about was documentation. You know, I mean, that was great advice to anyone who's looking to help somebody get through something or deal with any kind of legal proceedings. You know, guesswork is one thing. Documented facts are another, you know, and 100 percent. That's, that's great. That's how advice. we lived, man. Yeah. I mean, we lived that, and died by the facts. By the facts, and that's great, you know, and that's fantastic. But like, like he was saying, you know, he he was able to compartmentalize his emotional mind towards the situation, and then his like investigator mind, you know, because he investigated you himself, you know, like the case. I mean, but and I thought that was neat. I mean, your dad's a really intelligent guy, you know. Yeah, that really kept him going in so many respects. It was uh, it was awesome to see, man. Gave him a lot, and um, yeah, I'm really glad that we got him on here to talk about that. Speaking of talking about really interesting things, Dave and I are going to do an episode with just us two next week. So send your questions. I mean, we got quite a few that we've gotten already from a lot of really awesome listeners, and we appreciate those. But uh, reach out to our social media pages, ask us all the questions you want, and we're going to talk about some crazy things. I know Dave's got some hilarious stories, so we're going to get into that next week. (laughs) Well, we'll see. But yeah, send the questions. You can hit me on Instagram, DaveDowling526111, or you can friend me on Facebook. Indeed. And remember to share this with all your friends and family. Uh, You know, we do this for free. We're doing this just to to spread the word and give people a voice and talk about what's going on with our criminal justice system this is all of our criminal justice system the good the bad and the ugly so uh share it let us know your thoughts and uh and we'll see you next week see you count time